welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, Mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. never told anything about complex regional pain syndrome or neural sensitization, even though probably a huge chunk of our patients are somewhere on that spectrum of neural sensitization. It didn't come to me through Chinese medicine. There was nothing in Chinese medicine that said don't needle locally. And there, nothing in Chinese medicine said don't needle distally either. I mean, I was putting needles in her opposite arm and so on. So here's my two suggestions. Whatever your specialty is, 
Study up a little bit on CRPS so you recognize it when it comes in your office. You might save somebody's life. You might be the first person to recognize it because it's frequently missed by Western doctors. And above all, study the mechanisms of neural sensitization or central sensitization, as it's sometimes called, or sympathetically maintained pain is another term for it, where the sympathetic nervous system is maintaining the pain. Study up on those a lot, and a lot of your difficult intractable cases will suddenly start to make a lot more sense, and you'll have some tools to treat them. Hey, AccuSprouts, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a case review episode that I'm discussing with Anthony Vondermuel, who came on the show and discussed a shoulder case in episode 45 that was pretty amazing. The person was diagnosed as needing a full shoulder replacement and Anthony was able to help her avoid that. So be sure and listen to that episode. Today, we actually start this episode with a brief conversation about consent to treat and why that's important. If you find that even a little intriguing and you're interested in how you can best manage not being sued, and if even you are the unfortunate person who ends up in a position where they may be sued, you will have covered all of your legal bases with all of Anthony's instructions on how to provide a consent to treat, both verbally and written. And that will be in a future episode. So watch for that. Okay, today's episode, we touch on that briefly, but then we do a case review of a 49-year-old male presenting with mysterious leg pain, excruciating leg pain. We discuss why it's important to do a thorough evaluation, even if Western medicine appears to have done thorough evaluations. Uh, And then we talk about why it's important to understand the concept of nerve desensitization, especially with regards to chronic pain, and how it is that we can help, especially with electroacupuncture. Hi, Anthony. Welcome back to the AccuSprout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back and do another case review with me. Why don't you tell the audience, in case they are not familiar with you, a little bit about yourself and maybe what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Well, thank you again for having me back, Stacey, and it's really a pleasure to share what I've learned through some great teachers, but also the school of hard knocks and practice over the last 20 years. And I hope that it helps those of you particularly who are starting out in this challenging but very rewarding field. In a nutshell, I was on the fence prior to acupuncture school, whether I wanted to go to physical therapy school or acupuncture, and I chose acupuncture. I'd had a number of sports injuries in my early 20s that left me in sort of chronic pain and some degree of disability. And acupuncture just worked better. And so I ended up choosing acupuncture school. And after graduating from the Five Branches University of Traditional Chinese Medicine in Santa Cruz, California in 2002, I went on to develop a local practice in sports and orthopedic acupuncture in Santa Cruz and um, did a specialization program, a diplomat, which unfortunately no longer exists. It's been kind of replaced by doctor programs. But it was called the diplomat for the National Board of Acupuncture Orthopedics and also studied a lot with a gentleman named Alon Marcos, who has since retired from the acupuncture field, but was a real encyclopedia of orthopedic techniques. And Richard Tan and you know, some other, other teachers along the way. But I also sort of developed my own integration of a somewhat eclectic approach. And I think that's a lot of what I like to share with my students and colleagues is choosing the right tool for the presentation or the right tools for the presentation. We have a very large tool chest as acupuncturists, 
And there's no reason for us to, to feel confined to a particular technique or modality or style uh, when we have very diverse patients with very diverse presentations. Uh, starting in 2015, I started teaching at the continuing education level and developed a certification program modeled after the old Board of Acupuncture Orthopedics. And that too has been largely absorbed into a doctor program at uh, the Academy of Chinese Culture and Health Sciences in Oakland, which I have been very pleased to teach at starting from their very first day in 2017 and also took their program as a student so that I could brush up on my herbal medicine skills, which atrophied badly after I passed the licensing exam. And so that's, that's kind of what brings me to where I am today. Great. So you practice mostly orthopedic style acupuncture. And the two modalities that I'm most familiar with that you teach are what you call prolo needling and then trigger point therapy. Is that correct? Well, those are, I would say, probably what I'm most known for as distinctive modalities that I teach, and particularly the proloacupuncture or joint needling, as it might be called, is not widely taught and not widely practiced and not well known, but it's probably my number one go-to technique that I think is essential for anyone who's serious about long-term outcomes for patients. I also use electroacupuncture quite frequently, and I use distal acupuncture, particularly, as I mentioned, Richard Tan's balance method, but also sometimes TCM and eight extras and so on, auricular, washa, cupping, certain styles of manual therapy or twina. And so I, I actually teach all of those, but particularly, you're right, it's the myofascial trigger point needling and above all the ligamentous proloacupuncture or joint needling that are really, I think, what I use the most and are very distinctive styles. And so for the listeners, if you are interested in another episode that Anthony and I produced, you can find that in episode 45, where he treats neck and shoulder pain and helps prevent a total shoulder replacement in a patient. It's pretty amazing. So I suggest you go listen to that episode as well. So before we start, Anthony, my target audience is beginners. And I feel like repetition is key with us. And since you're also, I guess we didn't talk about this, but you're also an expert witness and have attended many court cases when things have gone wrong with acupuncture. And so I sort of wanted to touch on that briefly. And I'm hoping perhaps we can do a verbal consent, something like you would do with an orthopedic patient prior to needling so that sure. our listeners have this as a tool to go back and listen to a couple times so that they can make sure that they touch on everything that they need to say prior to needling a patient. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up as a question and an issue, Stacey, because through my work as an expert witness in malpractice cases and also serving for the California Acupuncture Board, as it's called a subject matter expert, where my role is simply to weigh in on, is there a professional standard that applies to the given situation? And was it followed by the acupuncturist or was it not followed? And every single case that I've served on, without exception, one of the features has been an inadequate or completely, often completely absent, informed consent. Um, and for those of you that you're not familiar with the term informed consent, there was a couple of different ways. I think, Stacey, you were referring to it as in your, your school, it was, there was an abbreviation that was used, PAR-Q. But basically what it is, is a process that probably all of us are familiar with and just shrug off and don't even think about when we go see a family physician or a you know medical doctor or something like that, of a discussion about the, the risks and side effects of the proposed treatment and also something about the costs and the plan. And Western medicine also doesn't do a great job of this. But if you do a great job of it, you can 
I hope you don't, but you might cause a very serious injury to a patient and not get sued and not get reported to the acupuncture board because you've done a good job with informed consent. And conversely, if you don't do your informed consent, you're in much greater jeopardy if something happens to go wrong, even something really trivial. And I've seen malpractice cases come out of moxa burns that were almost invisible to the naked eye, a slip and fall getting off a table, things that really could happen to anyone, even with the best of intentions and a high degree of care and skill and so on. So the elements of informed consent are proposing, it's more than just risks and side effects. It's talking to the patient about what's the plan. You know, what is the, what's your diagnosis? What's your assessment? And it should be in a language that they can comprehend. If you say, my diagnosis is your wood is invading your earth and the patient has no prior background and no experience, even if they do have some background experience in five element acupuncture, yeah, that's inadequate as informed consent because unless that's the patient's primary language, they don't speak English, they just speak the language of five element ease. Even for treating patients for whom English is not their primary language or they're from a different cultural background, we should be using standard international medical terminology to say something, even if it's very vague, like you have low back pain or you have a headache or I'm going to treat you for colds and flus. So that's the first step. And the second is you propose how you're going to go about that treatment. And so far, probably most of us do at least that much, but not all of us do. And again, this is something I've seen in malpractice cases that the patient complains that the acupuncturist did a brief interview and then said, okay, get on the table and, and lie face down and get ready for your treatment. And the patient comes out of it like, I don't even know what I'm being treated for. The acupuncturist never told me what they think the problem is and what they're going to do. That's day spa style. That's like if you're a massage therapist and you forgot everything you learned in acupuncture school and you went back to just day spa, like, okay, get on the table and get ready to receive a treatment. But we're medical professionals. When we have a license, we have a license because we can do great harm. And professions where malpractice can cause serious harm or even death have to be licensed to protect the public. So once you got your license, you need to bump it up to a professional standard where you provide a diagnosis, whether you may not want to call it a diagnosis in certain states. If you're not primary care, you call it an assessment or an impression. But you need to tell them why you think that your treatment is appropriate for them and then discuss the modalities and then you get into the risks and side effects and you don't need to detail every single known risk and side effect but you do need to mention both the ones that are fairly common and routine like a little post-needling soreness a little fatigue a little bit of perhaps dizziness and disorientation and you need to talk about the scary ones even though they're rare pneumothoraxes in particular organ puncture generally those are probably your two big ones. But I also mentioned nerve trauma and bleeding and hematomas. And those are a little more common and not typically as serious, but you need to cover the whole spectrum from the seemingly trivial to the very serious third degree burns from mox or a heat lamp falling on somebody or positioned too close to them, left on too hot, too long. I know that's scary to do and you, and people, particularly when you're beginning, you don't want to have that discussion, right? No one wants to have that discussion. No one wants to be at either end of that discussion. So it's very easy to gloss over it and not look the patient in the eye and kind of mumble something quickly. Or maybe you don't have that conversation at all. You just rely on the informed consent document provided by your malpractice insurance company or one you made up on your own or you got from a class. Written is inadequate. So let's say that I'm your patient. Let's hear it. Okay. So Stacy, let's say I'm treating you for back pain. Okay. And I'll say, so Stacey, my impression is that you have some chronic low back pain. 
and some upper back pain, and I'm going to recommend that we use some acupuncture. Uh, we might also use some manual therapy, some cupping, maybe something called gua sha. I might prescribe some Chinese herbs. But today, just for the sake of our podcast, we're going to keep it simple. I'm going to talk just about the acupuncture. And acupuncture is generally considered a very safe medical procedure, but it does have some risks and side effects that I want you to understand so that you can make an informed choice about whether you want to go ahead with treatment and so that you recognize the side effects if you have them afterwards and how to manage them and let me know about them. So the one that I'm most concerned about is something called a pneumothorax injury, which is a, a puncture to the lungs. We're well-trained in how to prevent and avoid that. It's a very rare occurrence. But should you develop chest pain, difficulty breathing, severe malaise, disorientation, post-acupuncture, within a couple of days or so after an acupuncture treatment, you should immediately let me know. And if you can't reach me, don't hesitate to call 911. And severe difficulty breathing for any reason is a 911 call. Um, in addition to that very rare but serious complication from acupuncture, other organs can be punctured. Sometimes a nerve can be irritated, a little ongoing pain for a while. Sometimes a bruise can result. And if you do feel really fatigued or disoriented or dizzy after treatment, please let me know right away when I come in to get you up for treatment so that I can make sure that you're safe to walk out of the clinic. I can guide you off the table and so on. Now, in addition to acupuncture, there are some other modalities that might be effective for you to consider, such as physical therapy, chiropractic, massage therapy. And I'm happy to refer you to any of those if you'd like to try those either in addition to or instead of acupuncture. And this is what I recommend as a treatment plan is four to six visits over the course of the next month, followed by reevaluation. And the cost of that would be approximately whatever your fees are. Do you have any questions or concerns that you'd like to ask me before we decide whether we're going to go ahead with treatment? So that's my informed consent. I know. That's great. And I was like, oh, I can't even challenge you. I can't think of a bunch of questions for you because you covered everything. <laughs> Probably most things, but people occasionally have questions. Usually they just shrug it off. And I have never had a single patient walk out of my clinic and say, I'm sorry, after hearing that about pneumothorax, I decided I really don't want to get treatment. Not one in 20 years of doing this. Thanks for saying that because I can feel all of my new practitioners backpedaling because they're hungry. They don't have a lot of patients. They need money. They need patients. And so they're going to be afraid to say, that especially, by the way, if you want to try chiropractic, here's a name. I've got names for yeah. you. I imagine new practitioners don't realize is that actually builds credibility when you exactly. do that. It's a very high standard professionalism type of act to do to approach it with not a giant attached ego to your patient and say, there's lots of things that you can try. I know amazing people who do these things. And if you ever decide that's what your path is, then that's okay. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in fact, that's exactly right. What patients have told me is I've seen many acupuncturists and no one ever discussed this with me before. I've never even heard this. I didn't realize that acupuncture had these risks and side effects. Thank you for telling me that. And then boom, their trust level is much higher. Their recognition of professionalism is there. And also here's what's really important is that they know to call me if there is a problem and that I will be receptive to that and I'll help them manage it. Because some of the real tragic or terrible cases that I've seen, the patient has not informed the acupuncturist either because they didn't trust them or they didn't realize what was going on and they wound up in the ER. I served in one case, it was a pneumothorax death. So it's very important that my patients know that should they develop some post-acupuncture 
chest pain difficulty breathing to take it seriously and manage it promptly. Let me know, go to the ER if they need to, et cetera. Do you have a bunch of nervous Nellies calling you after? I don't know where I'm going with this, but I feel like people are really nervous about acupuncture and Chinese medicine sometimes. Yeah. I take calls. I'm with you. I'm like, let's talk about it. I don't want you to walk around afraid because you're not going to stick with it. You're not going to go through the treatment plan. I want to be as transparent as possible and take care of any concerns that you have. So that's the point. Like you do a really good job informing on the front end. You say that you're available for questions. You ask them right there if they have any questions, they know the door is open. Yes. Yeah, I would say I probably get less of those calls because I've done it up front. And when I do get them, they don't have this edge of like, did you hurt me? Do you know what you're doing? They're much more likely to be, I just want to check in with you and make sure that this is kind of within the normal range and so yeah. on. So yeah, I think probably it actually reduces those. Yeah, I think so too. Okay. So today we're going to do a case review that you brought. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and where we're going to go with that? Yeah, so this was a patient that I worked with fairly extensively over a couple of years. I thought his case would be an interesting case study for a couple of reasons, because the acupuncture, but also the communication with him made a huge difference for him. It also involves electroacupuncture, which is something that Stacey, you, you expressed a particular interest in. And electroacupuncture is a very, very safe and very, very useful tool that I highly recommend, particularly if you're a beginning practitioner who's like, you're not quite confident or sure of your skills wielding needles and herbs and so on, electroacupuncture works very well for pain and it doesn't require much skill. So what I hope you take out of this case study is a number of things, but one of them being whatever apprehension or uncertainties I have over using electricity with acupuncture, it's time to get over it and recognize this is one of my most useful, safest, best tools in my toolbox. Awesome. I nerded out in school on electro and I actually bought two machines while I was in school because I was like, I'm going to just use this so much. I don't know. I was ahead of myself, but we just didn't get enough training. As many times as I go back and look at it, I still sort of don't get it. I like, I know where to set things and I know how to set them, but I don't understand it completely. So I'm really excited that you're going to come sure. on and talk to us about this because I think that I am not alone. I think most acupuncturists <laughs> do not really understand Electra. We know it works. We know it's super helpful, but how? So thank you for doing yeah, this. Sure. And there are definitely acupuncturists who know more about electroacupuncture than I do. I use it as a tool. Partly why I haven't delved into it in as much depth and detail as some acupuncturists do is that I don't think one needs to know everything there is to know about electroacupuncture to make <laughs> it work. And that's why I'd say for a beginner, it's a very useful tool because there's hardly any ways you can go wrong. And most of the time, no matter what you do, it's going to be really helpful. But this particular patient, he was a white male construction worker, about 49 years old when I first saw him. And I worked with him a couple of times over the course of a couple of years for like rotator cuff tendonitis, fairly garden variety stuff. I seemed to respond well to acupuncture. I hadn't seen him for a year or two. And he came in one day in excruciating pain. I mean, really excruciating, not just sitting there calmly saying, oh, yeah, it's an eight out of 10 today, but like sweating, breathing hard, limping. He was in real, real agony in his right leg. He hadn't had an orthopedic injury. So I have to say, this is not strictly speaking an orthopedic case, but he thought it was, and he kind of presented as such. He thought that it maybe was, he said it was some lack of blood flow in my leg, and he did have a history of gout. So he thought maybe it was a really bad gout flare. But it was in, involving his entire right leg. And if you know anything about gout or vascular flow for that 
matter. It does not involve an entire limb. It's going to be more localized than that. Gout's going to be a joint. A limb is going to be whatever particular vascular distribution, that part of the limb. He had consulted with rheumatology and podiatry, and they had both used their hammer to pound the nail. And the rheumatologist said, I think you're having a gout flare. I mean, sorry, a rheumatoid arthritis flare. And the podiatrist said, I think you're having a gout flare. So I don't blame him for thinking that's what was going on. But his pain was so bad that he went into urgent care and he had an MRI and they said, oh, he has some torn ligaments in your ankle. But he hadn't had any recent trauma. He hadn't had a recent ankle sprain or injury. He hadn't had any injections. He hadn't had any surgery. So right away, I'm thinking this is way worse than any gout or rheumatoid arthritis or ankle sprain I've ever seen. Something's up here. And one thing I should suggest to you beginning practitioners is trust your gut. When something just doesn't fit the profile and seems out of the ordinary, pay attention to that. And you'll get better with that. I think to listen to that and do the research, because I hate to say it, but Western medicine isn't always right. And you should pursue things that, that trigger your intuition for sure. Yes. Yep. And this is exactly the case where we'll see. Western medicine was right in this case, but Western medical professionals were missing something. And this is why as an acupuncturist, it's actually quite important to be conversant and know your Western medicine because it was the education and training I'd had in Western medicine that allowed me to really help this patient out a lot. So he was on corticosteroids and Norco, an opioid, a strong opioid, and indomethacin, which is a medication for rheumatoid arthritis. And he didn't have any numbness or tingling in his leg, which is significant because that told me it was not, for example, like sciatica or a herniated disc pushing on a nerve root in his low back. And he didn't have low back pain. And interestingly, he said one of the only things that helped was to elevate his leg above his heart. It's like, okay, there is a vascular aspect to this, but there's no known primary vascular disease that causes excruciating right leg pain. But the vascular system's clearly involved. He also said that stress made it worse, psychosocial stress, and that's fairly commonplace, but there was another little like, okay, it's not just orthopedic. And he described it as burning pain. It's fairly common, but it would come and go. There would be these paroxysmal episodes where it was just excruciating, like when he walked into my clinic, and then it would fade, and then it would come back again without any clear pattern or triggers. And so that was really interesting to me. It's like, this is a zebra. This is not a horse. So in his presentation, he was very agitated, frustrated, kind of angry about this whole situation. Couldn't understand why it was happening and why the medications that had worked for his gout and RA flares before weren't helping with this. How long had he had the pain? I think it had been about a month, as I remember, and it kept coming and going. And because it would go away, it wasn't robustly seeking out all forms of care. But he, again, he had been to his rheumatologist, his podiatrist, he'd gone to the ER. And then he finally was like, I think I'll go see that acupuncturist that helped me with my shoulder a couple of years ago, see if he can help. So I asked him to take off his shoes and socks on both sides. And his right foot is dark red and kind of swollen and mottled. So I'm like, well, there's definitely something vascular going on here. And it was more pronounced when his leg was in a dependent position, like sitting on the table with his leg dangling down. And then he would lie on his back and elevated and the redness and the swelling would fade somewhat. So history is only getting me so far here. I've got to do more physical exams. So I start examining his foot and his leg a little bit. And he was having real difficulty with plantar flexion and dorsiflexion of his ankle. It was painful. He didn't want to do it. And both plantar flexion and dorsiflexion, which is a little unusual for an ankle injury, and all of his foot digits too, his toes, he was really having trouble moving them. He would try to move them and it would just hurt too much. So I said, it would be okay with you if I gently moved your ankle and your foot. He was. And what I found was a very unusual but distinctive, almost diagnostic sensation. 
which was there was this kind of continuous smooth resistance to me moving his ankle and his toes like they were embedded in like really really thick oatmeal or glue I was trying to push them through some fluid resistance in every plane of motion and again it's like okay this is not orthopedic ankle sprain because that's going to be fine in one plane of motion no problem and then when I move it too far suddenly I'm stretching a torn ligament and it abruptly hurts what about like a fascial restriction does that feel different how does that feel in comparison to that's a good question. A fascial restriction, again, would not be every single plane of motion throughout mm. all joints. It would be a particular tract, a particular pathway, like the Achilles tendon or the tibialis anterior tendon. And I didn't think it was a, a primary nerve problem either, a peripheral nerve problem, because there was no numbness or tingling, which typically accompanies peripheral nerve problems. So basically, because I treated this condition a number of times before, and while working in a physician-led pain clinic, I was like, I think you might have something called complex regional pain syndrome, which is something much more specific than it sounds. It is not just a catch-all wastebasket diagnosis of saying, well, you got chronic pain. No, it is a complex neurologic disorder that originates out of usually an orthopedic injury, but occasionally other problems will cause it. But it becomes a primary disease mediated by the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. And it starts to affect the vascular system and the pseudomotor system, pseudomotor being skin, hair, nails. And so some of the typical features of complex regional pain syndrome are excruciating, but also paroxysmal pain that comes in waves, model skin color because the vascular system is disturbed, swelling and heat sensations. It looks hot and red. From a Chinese medicine point of view, it's like, oh, he's got hot, damp, painful obstruction in his foot but of a really severe kind. There's actually a term, probably the closest correlate in Chinese medicine, something called scorching pain, not a Zongfu syndrome, a, a disease patterns. And there's this characteristic abnormality in both active and passive range of motion where all planes are affected equally. And it's very painful for the patient to move it. It doesn't hurt when I move it, but there's this weird kind of glue-like resistance. This is really strange because usually this does develop out of an orthopedic injury. If you'd come in saying you'd sprained your ankle badly, I'd seen other CRPS cases develop out of that, or you had a puncture wound, or somebody done surgery on it, or acupuncture injections can cause CRPS. I've seen all of that. Like, this is the damnedest thing, but you may have developed CRPS out of a bad gout flare or rheumatoid arthritis flare. It would be a very atypical, this would be a, not just a zebra, this would be a pink and purple striped zebra. You know, really, really rare. But I said, that's the only thing I can think of that fits this pattern. So I'm going to treat you with a particular treatment using electroacupuncture that specifically targets CRPS and probably won't have much effect on anything else. But there's a very characteristic response to this if, in fact, you have CRPS. And I'm also going to suggest that you go back to your family doctor and you ask for a referral to neurology or pain medicine, because those are the two specialties that might diagnose complex regional pain syndrome, or physiatry is the third one. Those three, they had their ears and eyes out more for CRPS than rheumatologists or podiatrists. So this treatment involves using electroacupuncture at the affected levels of the spine that supply the affected region to set up what's basically you call like a neural blockade. So I'm like, okay, it's in his legs. So we're talking about basically L3 to S2 is going to cover everything in the lower extremity. And so I used Watojaji. You could also use interbladder line along those levels from L3 down to S2. 
and hook it up to mixed frequency electrical stimulation. Mixed frequency means every, depending on your device, but most of them, it's about every three seconds, it's going to alternate from a low frequency, like one pulse or two pulses per second, to a high frequency, like 100 or 200 pulses per second or even higher. And that mixed frequency works particularly well on neuropathic pain because the nervous system cannot habituate to it. It doesn't get used to it. Every three seconds, the frequency is changing. And so the nervous system is constantly caught off guard. And whereas with steady continuous frequency, after five or 10 minutes, the nervous system gets used to it and the patient kind of stops feeling and then they have to turn it up or you as the practitioner have to turn it up. And that would be utilized more in like if you're trying to take a muscle that's in spasm and get it to relax, like a continuous. A continuous, that's right, right. Continuous works best on sort of neuromuscular re-education, on hypofunctioning muscles or hyperfunctioning muscles that have too much tone or not enough tone, or just muscle pain that is inhibiting proper use of the muscle. Continuous low frequency will work fine for that. Okay. But mixed frequency will work better on pain when the nervous system is the primary bad actor, the primary problem. So we do this, he agrees to the treatment, and then he comes back about, let's see, I think it's about a week later, he says, you know, the damnedest thing, I felt fantastic after that treatment. And what's interesting is that patients at CRPS, that word, they will actually use that particular word, they will say fantastic, not just it felt better, they will come back and say, you know what, that absolutely completely took away the pain for 24, 48 hours, maybe several days, and then it comes back. So here's the thing, is that usually when patient's pain comes all the way back, we say, oh, well, we just need to repeat the treatment. And that's true in this case too, repeating is going to be helpful. But here we can also say that that particular response is really highly suggestive CRPS because a sprained ankle or gout or rheumatoid arthritis, they won't come back saying the pain went completely away. I felt totally normal. Everything was fine. Like I'd never had a problem at all. And I felt fantastic. They'll say it felt better. So the progression will be something like this. It gets better and then it starts to slowly drift back. And you do another treatment and you kind of keep pushing it forward. With CRPS, you're going to get this like, wow, completely abolish the pain and then right back to baseline. But not rebound though. It's not worse. Not rebound, not worse, okay. just back to where it was. So I said, okay, this is not 100% diagnostic by itself, but it's strongly suggested that it's consistent with everything else that I'm seeing here, that you probably have a very atypical case of a rare disease. During that week, he'd also gone back to his family doctor, and his family doctor said, yeah, maybe this is CRPS, and referred him to neurology, and the neurologist looked at it and said, yeah, this is probably CRPS. So there is no definitive diagnostic test for CRPS in Western medicine. But basically what they do, they inject lidocaine, usually the stellate ganglion, which is the largest nerve bundle outside the spinal cord of the autonomic nervous system, and sometimes elsewhere, in an attempt to blockade pain signals from the periphery from making it up to the brain. And that's essentially what I was doing with electroacupuncture. And if the pain is abolished for 24 hours or more, and then comes right back when the lidocaine wears off, they're like, yes, yeah, it's probably CRPS. At this point, some of you may be saying, well, great. What good are you doing the patient if all you're doing is probable diagnosis and the pain comes right back? Well, if you repeat it over and over again long enough, typically it does get somewhat better, but it's basically considered an incurable condition. So what's really important is a case management here. So when me and his family doc and his neurologist are all on the same page saying, you probably have a you know, case of CRPS here, then I proceed to talk to him about CRPS. Now, this is tricky because we don't want to get outside our scope of practice, which would be like individualized psychotherapy. I don't want to like go into, did you have some you know, trauma or some kind of 
stress episode or something, et cetera. But what I do, what is really essential is to educate the patient about the disease. And that's within our scope of practice is to perform health education. So I say to him, okay, you're not going crazy. And that's what CRPS patients, typically their friends, family, their associates, maybe other doctors or other medical providers that aren't familiar with it will say, you're crazy. Essentially, that's what they're thinking. You're just a nut job, you know, no explanation for this pain that's off the charts. And you're just a crybaby or a wimp or a loony case or something. So you're not crazy at all. But it's not what it appears to be. It is not gout. It's not started as gout or rheumatoid arthritis, but it's turned into something that is affecting how your body processes pain signals in a way that amplifies, perpetuates, distorts, and gives you basically all kinds of garbage information that your body does not need, but which is excruciatingly painful. Here's what we can do to manage it is that probably you'll need to come in very frequently for electroacupuncture for quite a while. Uh, we just keep doing it. And Western medicine doesn't really have that much to offer this. They can do another stellate ganglion block and take the pain away for a few days. They will put them on heavy duty pain medications that have all kinds of nasty side effects. Their very skilled physical therapists can sometimes help with something very interesting called mirror box therapy that was pioneered for stroke rehab, which I can talk about if we had time. But there's basically very little that can be done for patients with CRPS, but acupuncture actually works fairly well. Sometimes patients will get more than a couple of days. Sometimes they'll get a good couple of weeks or a month or so of relief from a single visit. So I proceed to treat him frequently for a while and he is getting better, but most of all, he's realizing that he has some control over this, that if he manages his stress and doesn't go down the rabbit hole of thinking he's crazy, it actually isn't as bad. And he said a light bulb went off when his dog walked by and his dog's tail brushed his foot and it sent the pain through the roof. And then he was like, wait a minute. That was a dog tail. It wasn't a needle. There's no rational explanation for this. I'm not crazy, but my nervous system is really malfunctioning here. So he came back in at one point when he was having another flare. And he said, you know, I want to tell you that before I came in to see you, I had actually, after a month of this, I talked to my wife and figured out a way to commit suicide that she would still get my life insurance money. And that was the plan. And you were my last hope. And once you explained to me what was going on, and we got a diagnosis that fit. And I started realizing, oh, I can get relief and I can start to learn how to understand this and manage it. I like threw away the plan. As far as I know, he's still alive today. Wow. Thank you for that, first of all, because that's a great case. I think that would have been, I and mean, you and I discussed this prior to talking about this case study, that it might fly a little bit high, a little bit over our heads for a new practitioner, especially without the background that you have. But I said, let's do it anyway, because we're always talking over our heads and we're always pushing forward, trying to learn new things. So this is a great case. And what if this shows up in somebody's practice? They'll at least have an idea. One of the things I know that I struggle with as a newer practitioner is when do I let this go? I think for me, I tend to get a little bit impatient. And when I start getting impatient, then I get insecure and then it stresses me out. And if now I'm stressed out, I probably should be referring out or getting outside eyes. But I'll, I'll say I just went through a case where I was starting to get good responses and then it's just gone south again with this formula I had. And I changed the formula and stuck with it after I think like six or seven weeks and it just automatically resolved. Like all of a sudden, everything is good. So my question is, this is one of those things where I think as a beginner, they would have never caught that. I never would have known that that could have been a thing. I was going along the lines of, hey, I think this sounds like a cardiology problem. If it's a blood vascular issue, it could be a heart issue. I don't know what my question is. 
Can I try to help you out Please. here? Because I think I know what you're getting at. I think a very reasonable question for anyone to ask would be like, how do I, as a beginning acupuncturist or as a non-specialist in this bizarre, rare disease, how on earth would I ever recognize this? What relevance does this have for my practice? Well, it's a very fair question. But first of all, I'm going to suggest study up some on this disease, complex regional pain syndrome, because once you understand it, it's pathophysiology and you'll start seeing it. You'll see milder cases. This was a fairly extreme case, but you'll see it's a spectrum disorder and you'll start to see, oh my gosh, this is a mechanism underlying an awful lot of chronic pain. Maybe not full-blown CRPS, but there's a commonality here, which is a, a dysfunction of the central nervous system so that it is amplifying, perpetuating, and distorting pain signals all out of proportion to the patient's actual structural, physiological, orthopedic, or whatever condition. So as acupuncturists, do we get a lot of patients that are like bizarre, chronic, inexplicable, difficult, intractable, complex pain that has failed multiple other therapies? Of course we do. That's our bread and butter. That's who we see above all else. <laughs> and I started keeping track at a certain point and I stopped somewhere around 60 CRPS cases. I lost track of it. I was like, okay, whatever. I've got enough data. And that was maybe 10 years into my practice. Okay. So that's not like rotator cuff tendonitis that I'm seeing it every day of the week, but that's about six patients a year that had full-blown CRPS. And I had a lot of other patients that had some of the features I started realizing. And what CRPS is, is kind of a flagship example. Let me give you another even clearer example, phantom limb pain, right? Phantom limb pain is the most standout flagship example of something that we call a very critical concept to understand as an acupuncturist, which is neural sensitization. The nervous system is malfunctioning and perpetuating the pain. It's become highly sensitized to disturbances of any sort, such that a dog's tail brushing the patient's foot sends their pain through the roof, as an extreme example. So once you understand the concept of neural sensitization, you'll start to understand all these other patients like their chronic non-infectious prostatitis, their interstitial cystitis, their irritable bowel syndrome, their migraines, their chronic daily tension headaches, multiple chemical sensitivity syndrome, you know, on and on. There's a long list of these disorders that are increasingly recognized by Western medicine as having an element of neural sensitization somewhere between a small and a major part of their pathology. So that's what you can understand in terms of the physiology. And so again, how does this apply as an acupuncturist? Well, it can take a lot of the judgment out of yourself and your patients. Like, okay, they're not crazy and I'm not incompetent and the medicine does work, but their nervous system is really malfunctioning. That's at the bottom of this, or at least a significant player in this. And there are ways I can treat that neural dysfunction. And one is auricular acupuncture, which is something I added for this patient and often uses CRPS because through the, the earlobe is supplied by a branch of the vagus nerve that also communicates with the autonomic nervous system. Those of you that are into polyvagal theory and autonomic dysregulation, et cetera, will recognize that connection there. You can use scalp and above all, you can use electroacupuncture as a blockade. And you can do this again. It doesn't have to be CRPS or phantom limb pain. You can do this on your patient with irritable bowel syndrome, your patient with interstitial cystitis. You know, just think, what are the neurologic levels that supply the affected painful area and then apply electroacupuncture mixed frequency to your Watojaji and your inner bladder line or your governing vessel, just surround that area and block those pain signals from making their way up to the brain. 
This is exactly what my case was. My case was what could have been considered an irritable bowel syndrome case. And I put her on formulas and I was treating her face up and I was treating her abdominally. And then when it switched was when I treated her face down, I did not use electro, but I was on the bladder line treating along the bladder line. And that's when things changed. It's funny because when you were talking, you mentioned irritable bowel syndrome. I was like, wait, you can treat irritable bowel syndrome with electro, but you have to use the bladder line or the huateaus in order to do so, right? Yes. I mean, other things might work, but what I'm saying is, here's the takeaway, is that you can add this to anything else you're doing. And if you look back at a lot of classic TCM point prescriptions from textbooks like CAM or Machiocha or the Shanghai text, et cetera, you'll see the frequent usage of the inner bladder line in combination with other distal points. Mm -hmm. They don't always recommend using electrostim necessarily with it. You don't have to use the electrostim, but it works better if you use the electrical stim. Because to think of the nervous system as a bunch of wires, that's basically what they are, is physiologic wires in the body that conduct electrical current. And when they get disrupted or malfunctioning, running a steady or running a regular electric pulse through the nervous system helps to calm them down and normalize their function. Bring it back up if it's hypofunctioning like stroke, or bring it down if it's hyperfunctioning like phantom limb and CRPS and migraines and et cetera, et cetera. We're kind of stepping out, but it's also good to know, I think. Did you suggest or did their physicians suggest that they do something like EMDR, something to regulate their nervous system where they have more control over their stress levels? Great question. I don't know what their physician did or didn't recommend. I sort of recommend it in a general way because clinical counseling is not in our scope of practice in most states. I didn't get into like specific traumas. He has a number of hallmarks of them. And you know, as a matter of fact, in this particular case, I didn't do anything in that regard. I actually just explained the physiology of it. And he started coming back to me saying that, you know what? I really start to recognize that I do have some control over this. If I get stressed out and amped up, my pain goes to the root. And if I calm myself down and he didn't do EMDR, what he did is he lived up in the Santa Cruz mountains and he found a particular tree that he liked to sit under. Oh, that's really yeah. sweet. <laughs> There's nature providing the healing. Yeah, so. yeah, that's how I got through yeah. school. Yeah, that's awesome. So this is such a great case. I appreciate your bringing it to us. And I will also look at CRPS and study it a little bit. How often were you treating him? Well, initially, I was treating him fairly frequently. It was basically like once or twice a week for a good mm -hmm. couple months until things started to calm down and he started to realize he had some control over it himself. And then we started spacing out the treatments and more as needed. So basically what I tell patients, and this is true, not just CRPS, it's any pain syndrome or any orthopedic conditions. I want to catch you before things flare up again. I don't want you to go back into that zone of 10 out of 10 pain or real disability and depression and so on. So if the treatment effect lasts two days, you need to come in every other day. If the treatment effect lasts a week, I'll see you once a week. If the treatment effect lasts two weeks, we'll see every couple of weeks as kind of a general guideline. And after a while, he would drop out of treatment and come back in for a while. And then he would go through periods of like, you know what? I realized I just ought to just stick on a maintenance once a week. <laughs> but then he actually went back to work as a construction worker. Last I saw him, which was, I think, about three or four years ago at this point. But there is something before we wrap up, Stacey, if we have just a couple minutes, there's a couple things I do want to say about treating CRPS and about acupuncture that I think are very important to understand. This kind of will close the circle of the malpractice. Can we step back for a second? 
First of all, I had a question about, is that how you explain treatment to everybody? In other words, we're going to treat you, but if you have a rebound or if this flares up, then that's how often you need to come see me. Is that the way you treat everybody or was that just this case in particular? No, no, that's that's pretty much all cases. I mean, all cases where pain is, is a primary presenting symptom. Okay. So when it starts coming back, that's the marker for how often you need to see them. Yeah, preferably before it comes back full blown. Yeah. Right. And so that's definitely, that's something that you go over in the first treatment when you're getting informed consent, when you're talking about the treatment plan. That's something that you say in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. I usually say it at the conclusion of the treatment. It's not really necessarily part of the informed consent. I just give them a, like a boilerplate, like every four to six visits for a month. That's before I treat them. But then at the end of the visit, we'll talk about this. I don't know exactly the first time I treat somebody, am I going to get 24 hours or 24 days worth of relief? But I'll explain that probably we should schedule a follow-up within the week. And then based on how long the treatment effect lasted, that'll tell us how frequently we need to treat. Okay. If you're doing great, we can space it out every two weeks. If you only got a day's worth of relief, I'm going to need to see you very frequently for a little while. Okay. That was important. That's important to a new practitioner to know that myself included. Yes. yes. Okay. Go ahead. What else did you want to talk about? You wanted to talk about something else. Yeah. So I wanted to bring this sort of full circle to the question of malpractice. Sadly, one of the cases that I served on as an expert witness was a case that turned into CRPS that was mismanaged by an acupuncturist and it did not need to go there. It was a very tragic case. The patient was a young woman. She was a Qigong practitioner and teacher, massage therapist, fitness instructor, she had applied to acupuncture school. She was so looking forward to getting into this profession. She went to see an acupuncturist. She'd seen him a number of times and she was having some foot pain. He stuck a needle in kidney two and she felt a sudden sharp tingle and zing in the bottom of her foot. And it was still persisting a couple of days later. So she went to see a podiatrist and the podiatrist said, oh, you just had a little peripheral nerve irritation from the needle and it'll typically just go away on its own in a matter of days or weeks. She went back to the acupuncturist who then proceeded to take out a beyond stone, which I guess is like a jade tool or some other, I don't know what a beyond stone is exactly, it's a stone, and ground into the arch of her foot. And she started begging him to stop because the pain was just going through the roof, but he kept going. He said, no, 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 this will solve the problem of this persistent nerve irritation. And then it turned into CRPS. And so she was suing him. And basically her whole career folded up and she couldn't stand on her leg anymore. It was too painful to bear weight, couldn't practice Qigong, couldn't do massage therapy, canceled her application to acupuncture school. So don't do that. (laughs) If if a patient has a nerve trauma from your needle, leave it alone. The nerves are not like muscles. Nerves are very fragile and they grow very slowly. And what they need after they've been traumatized or lacerated or cut is to slowly be able to reunite on their own. You can use herbs, you can use distal acupuncture, but just don't do anything locally, just leave it alone. And the other thing I should say too, this is something that I did with a patient who I knew they had CRPS, but I didn't know how to treat it. This is before I understood the neural sensitization and the neural blockade treatment of electroacupuncture. She was a nurse, she'd stubbed her toe. That was it, and it turned into CRPS. CRPS is is a little bit frightening to look at because it's basically like the most trivial injury can turn into the most excruciating disease. It's very rare, but it's just basically like an unlucky roll of the dice. There are no predisposing factors that have been identified by Western medicine. And I can't say that there are either from a Chinese medicine perspective. It's just an extremely unlucky roll of the dice. Nobody knows why yet. And she was in even worse pain than this gentleman. I hope she's still alive. 
she would cry continuously throughout an hour visit just in agony. I mean, it's just like gothics, like something out of a medieval painting or something. Uh. Sort of twisting around on the table. It was a real challenge to get needles in anywhere. Every time I did, I did distal needling. I was thinking, Richard Tan's balance method, eight extras, TCM. I would make it worse. And finally, and I started realizing this after four or five visits, like, this is awful. I mean, it's horrible for me, horrible for her, horrible for her husband who was bringing her in. And so I called up somebody, Ted Preby, who I think is still practicing in a multidisciplinary pain center in Los Angeles. And all he does is treat CRPS. He's a CRPS expert specialist. I said, Ted, what do I do? And he's like, stop putting any needles in the affected limb. Don't ever touch the affected limb again. Don't do distal acupuncture. Just do the neural blockade. And explain to me what I told you about Wato Jaji or inner bladder line at the segmental levels. Unfortunately for this patient, that was a conversation I had with him after she dropped out of practice that I can't come back. This is just too excruciating. And I hope she didn't go on to commit suicide. I feel terrible about my mismanagement, but I also, in some sense, look back at the education, the training we got as acupuncturists. I'm like, there was something missing here. We were told that acupuncture would never make pain worse. We were never told anything about complex regional pain syndrome or neural sensitization, even though probably a huge chunk of our patients are somewhere on that spectrum of neural sensitization. It didn't come to me through Chinese medicine. There was nothing in Chinese medicine that said, don't needle locally. And there, nothing in Chinese medicine said, don't needle distally either. I mean, I was putting needles in her opposite arm and so on. So here's my two suggestions. Whatever your specialty is, study up a little bit on CRPS so you recognize if it comes into your office, you might save somebody's life. You might be the first person to recognize it because it's frequently missed by Western doctors. And above all, study the mechanisms of neural sensitization or central sensitization, as it's sometimes called or sympathetically maintained pain is another term for it, where the sympathetic nervous system is maintaining the pain. Study up on those a lot, and a lot of your difficult, intractable cases will suddenly start to make a lot more sense, and you'll have some tools to treat them. Have you written any papers? Is there any mm. publications out there regarding Chinese medicine and CRPS that they can take a look at? No. Actually, well, maybe aren't. you should that do that. That is a hole in the field. <laughs> in the case that I presented, I was thinking about turning it into my doctoral capstone project, and I made it perhaps a selfish decision. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to learn anything from making this case into a capstone project. I want to bone up on Chinese herbal medicine, which is a big deficit in my clinical practice. So I ended up doing something, on a study of Dr. Huang Wang's herbal medicine paradigms, in which I learned a lot from. So that benefited me. But prior to even considering this as a capstone, I did some research on electroacupuncture treatment of CRPS in the lower extremity. There's not a single published case study of this. Hopefully before I kick the bucket, I'll get this one into the medical journal pipeline. But anyone who's out there looking for a capstone project, this would be a good one because we can really help these patients out in a way that hardly anyone else can, maybe save their life and stop them from committing suicide. Just one last comment on that. I'm not just making this up about suicide. It's well-documented in CRPS that along with like severe tinnitus, these are some of the patients who are most at risk for committing suicide. One of our CRPS patients was in a CRPS support group, and she dropped out after the third suicide in her group. She was a very tough lady. She was just like a bulldozer of a personality. It's like, I don't need to be around these people who are committing suicide left and right. And this do nothing for me. Just you treat me. Yeah. Like you said, it's a horrible, unlucky roll of the dice. The whole time I was listening to you, I was like, oh God, oh God, that's just a horrible, horrible thing to happen. And then you're stuck, right? And then you're in the hole. Well, I'm glad that 
acupuncture can help treat that. I'm glad there's something that we can do for that. And I appreciate your bringing the awareness to this fact and teaching us a little bit about this. Anything else? Yes, unfortunately, this is just my last little suggestion. I need to teach a class on CRPS specifically. I do teach one on electroacupuncture. You can find it on my website. It's both of these things I cover extensively in the doctoral program at ACCHS. Just the last thing I want to leave you with as a practitioner is if you study up in CRPS, if you listen to what I've been talking about in my conversation with Stacy here, and you even suspect, you think maybe this patient has CRPS, my suggestion is don't treat them locally at least once. Do no local treatment. You don't want to make it worse. You won't necessarily drive them over the cliff, but don't treat them locally. Just do this Swatojaji inner bladder line, electroacupuncture protocol, and nothing else. And explain to them that you're doing this, may seem like a strange treatment to them, but you're doing this because you want to rule out CRPS. And if they come back to you a couple of days later and they say, wow, I felt fantastic, like nothing had ever happened. I was just fine. Then don't treat locally, right? Because you, you could go make it worse. Just stick with the spinal blockade. And if they come back and they say, you know, I felt a little better or it didn't do that much for me or I'm not really sure or maybe I felt somewhat better, then just go about doing whatever your regular approach would be for this patient and consider continuing to use the blockade, but they probably don't have CRPS or they've got a, maybe a couple features, but not the full-blown syndrome. What if you're the first person to discover that this is probably CRPS? Would you then refer out to their GP and make sure that they get a proper diagnosis? Because this is a big, heavy lift. Like you need a team around this, right? Exactly. And it's pretty much, as I said, with this gentleman, I probably was the first person. I mean, I always hate to claim that because maybe the podiatrist and the rheumatologist and the family doc were all thinking, huh, maybe he has CRPS. But as he told the story, I was the first one that really put a name to it. And if you do suspect it, and no one else has addressed this, no one else is suspecting it, probably the best initial referral, depending on the patient's insurance, et cetera, is at least, gosh, I hate to say this, send them back to their family doc. But if you possibly can also get them in to see a, a neurologist or a pain physician or a physiatrist, because one of the other tragic cases, they had no insurance and they were seeing a family doc at a community clinic and an you know, overburdened family doc just said, oh, you have carpal tunnel syndrome. And it, my referral went nowhere. And by the time I got them, they've been seen at a county free treatment hospital by an orthopedist. And by the time they got back to the orthopedist who cut the cast off their arm, and then the orthopedist said, oh, oh, you have CRPS and it's too late. So early intervention is critical with this. If you intervene at the earliest signs or symptoms of CRPS, you can abort the whole process. Four, six weeks later, it's too late. And then you're managing. But this patient was another one who was just in excruciating agony, would cry and weep throughout the entire treatment. Most of our chronic pain patients do not weep on the table, do they? That's not very common. Yeah. So if you got a patient who comes in and is in agony, crying because of the pain, think about CRPS. Okay. How can we end this on a happy? Well, the case study is still alive, as far as I know, and knows how to manage it. One of my best success stories was a patient who had, again, seven months before shopped around among different pod podiatrists, she'd had a bad ankle sprain. Finally, a podiatrist took an x-ray and said, oh, you've got holes in your bones, basically. You have osteoporosis in your leg and you're a 35-year-old woman with no risk factors for osteoporosis. This must be CRPS. CRPS will cause osteoporosis in the affected limb and it will spread throughout the whole body. This is horrible. What a horrible disease. Oh my gosh. But here's the happy, we're digging for happy stories here. So I started treating her with my CRPS protocol 
And she was very, she was religious. Every week for a year, she came in. She was, it was a school clinic, low-cost treatment. And at the end of that, she'd thrown away her crutches. She was riding her motorcycle again. She was dancing. She went back to her podiatrist, and her podiatrist took another follow-up x-ray. And apparently, I wasn't in the room, but the patient told me, she called her medical assistant into the room and said, can you double-check to make sure that we didn't somehow switch x-rays? Because her bone density is completely back to normal. This shouldn't happen. Now, this patient still continues to have flares every now and then, but her flares were spaced out. I would see her like once every five or six months or a couple times a year rather than every week. So it was manageable, very manageable. It was back to full functioning, enjoying life. She knew what to do and things flared up again and her bone density was back to normal. Okay, thank you. I'm ridiculously sensitive. I'm like, let's end this happy somehow. <laughs> <laughs> we need to end on a, on a good note here yeah. and hopefully with this information, you can take a lot more of your chronic pain patients and discharge them on a good note, you know, feeling happy about the whole process and the world. I so appreciate you coming on and doing these case reviews because I feel like I walk away with a multitude of super helpful tools. I appreciate it so much. So thanks again for coming on today, Anthony. Thank you. My pleasure. Gosh, you're welcome on anytime. Anytime. Well, thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure and I'll look forward to another opportunity sometime. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.